You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Today on the show, I have Marcy Walker. Many of you may know her from Black Coffee with White Friends. I, being fairly new to Instagram, didn't really know much about Marcy's work. But when I encountered it, I knew I was stepping into a sacred place. This was one of those moments of realization for me that there was more to do in this work and that there is this sacred space that if we are fortunate enough to enter into it, we can connect with, commune with, and move forward in greater freedom toward humanity. I am a huge fan, Marcy, and I'm so excited that you're on the show with me today. Welcome. Wow. Thank you. That is quite the introduction. Um, As you're saying it, I'm I'm saying, yes, that's, that's exactly what I want to be. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, thank you. Because seriously, I remember when I found your your space and I was just, you know, it's so easy to be in this work and to feel battered mm-hmm. and bruised and wounded and right. discouraged, right? And and I found your space yeah. and I felt like I could take a deep breath. That's good. That's great. That's what I aim for, truly. Yeah. And truly. I there's a book, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I have, a, I have a very cool Brene Brown story, by the way. Ooh, ooh, tell. Um, my husband did the cover design for Rising Strong and all the <gasps> type inside the book. All the typefaces, the typeface page. Yeah, so it's like our wow. little. Um, and it was really funny because she was so gracious in the process. A lot of authors don't get a lot of say in the way that their book looks, but she mm-hmm. did. And he was selected to work on it. And I was just a fangirl over it. And, and our yeah. school was big on the her books. But um, she invited us to hear her speak here in Austin. But I had a little one and she was sick at night. So we didn't get to go. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, I've had so many moments like that, as many moms have, where we've had these incredible things, tickets land in our lap and, you know. Oh, yes. Yes. The night with your kids running a fever. Oh, (laughs) yeah. So we didn't get the ghost. I've never met her, but um, I love the fact that he did that book. That is so cool. Yeah. The reason I brought her up is because there was this point in time where I was in just this process of almost like an agony, like um, feeling feeling on my own. And her book, Braving the Wilderness, had been sitting on my shelf for quite some time. And I just felt this Mm -hmm. nudge, like, read this book, you know. And so I remember opening that book and just the first paragraph hit me. And it was one Mm -hmm. of those moments where I knew... I was stepping into that sacred space. I could take a deep breath. I felt like somebody sort of understood me, Mm -hmm. you know, or was able to communicate my deepest emotions. And, um, and so it reminded me a lot of you when I stepped into your space. So 
I want to know a little about who you are and whatever you want to tell us in terms of how you have become who you are today. Wow. Um, well, I am a mom. I have a daughter. She's 16, about to be 17. And I'm a very passionate mom. Um, maybe a bit too much, though. So she were here to tell the story <laughs> a little much. Extra, as she likes to say, I'm extra. But um, I come from a very dysfunctional childhood, and I didn't grow up with my mom. And my mom was mentally ill and in and out of hospitals and very unstable, but I was enamored by her. I was very much um, just my mother's biggest fan. I wanted to be with her all the time, but she really wasn't someone who could take care of children. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was a dynamic person and all those around her knew it. She was the woman who fed the homeless and invited them to stay with her and befriended prostitutes and pimps. And she was just a very, I'm going to do this gospel kind of a woman in wow. a very real way. Mm-hmm. And she wouldn't have called it that. She just would have called it being herself. But mm-hmm. I grew up kind of with this very unique childhood because I spent summers and weekends with her and and vacations, and they were always a bit tumultuous, always a bit on the edge of danger, if not dangerous, and because of the people who surrounded us. And it it wasn't necessarily the people that she was inviting in. It was her mental illness that that brought the danger. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of questionable people that no one would ever leave their children with saved my life from, from my mother's choices or mm. watch over me and protect us. So I grew up with that kind of a childhood. So I'm spending time with her in a very middle class, working class and middle class, all black community. And then my school year is with my grandparents in a very white community. Um, we were one of the only black families, maybe out of three families, but mm. a small town, but a huge community of whiteness. And right. we were the black speck and I was the darkest one because I was the darkest one in my family. I had these grandparents who were very light, like my grandfather looked like Boss Hogg from Dukes of Hazard, did not right. look like a black man. And my grandmother was very fair skinned and I was this, I felt like I was the mistake in the family. And I always felt that way. And I had these older brothers and sisters who were super protective of me. And we kind of went through our own battles with being the the Black representatives in our classes. Mm -hmm. Um, But we never discussed it at home. So race was not a topic at home. My parents, my grandparents and my mom were part of the Great Migration. We never discussed it. It was was nothing that we were educated on Mm -hmm. at home. So I just had all this angst with my identity but no real place to go with it and no real person to turn to, to explain it. And so I had this daughter. I was, this is, I'm in my second marriage, my last and final marriage, but um, my (laughs) first marriage, um, he had a mom who was really, my ex-mother-in-law was really into diversity. And I just didn't see the purpose of that. All I knew was that I was supposed to work hard and do well. That's it. I knew nothing about systematic oppression. I knew nothing about systemic race. I knew nothing, none of those things. And right. she was very much into all of those things because she had come from the Arkansas and had received a master's degree, owned her own company, was a millionaire and very go-getting and very intimidating. 
Um, mm. And so she had this different story and I just didn't understand it. I just didn't understand identity as a woman, as a woman of color. I just didn't. And I, and I sort of didn't truly come into understanding my story until putting my daughter into an all white conservative Christian academy here in my town. And you write about that a yeah. bit. And then I realized, okay, so either Jesus is for all of us or he's just for these people. Mm-hmm. And it was something that plagued me all the time. Like I was just plagued with this feeling that there was just more to the gospel, more to my story, more to all of it than I had the pieces to. And then I had this kind of epiphany one night at a meeting at school. A teacher was explaining how our children were going to do a mock slave debate and that my daughter would have to have to argue both for and against slavery with her <sighs> all white classmates. No. <laughs> and, um, and it was coming up. She was a ninth grader and they were saying this was going to happen in the 11th grade. Uh-huh. And I just remember just thinking, she can't do that. They shouldn't be doing this. Right. And I said to my husband, who's, who's British and redhead and white, on the way out, I was like, did you catch that? And he said, I actually didn't catch it until you said it. When you repeated what they were doing, it went off for him too. And so we both had this kind of light go off Mm -hmm. that there's something really wrong here. And I went home and I did a lot of research, a lot of soul searching, a lot of praying, a lot of talking to people, because what I didn't want to do was to arrive to a conclusion that could be dismissed as being just sensitive or emotional. I Mm. wanted to come in with something that was real, concrete, and compelling. That that was what I wanted. And mm-hmm. so I emailed the teacher, asked her to clarify, and she immediately emailed back, I think we should talk and I think we should get the head of the school involved. And the head of the school, of the high school, because there's three schools, a high school, a middle school, and a grammar school, the head of the high school happened to have he recently adopted an African-American boy, um, Mm -hmm. a a young African-American boy. And he was like, I I definitely want to sit down and talk about this. And it was interesting. She told me her story. She told me Mm -hmm. her story of growing up in Selma. She told me about being in a family that was racist. She told me about how she felt she'd overcome this and how she was gutted that there was blindness there, that there Mm. was still this blindness. And I remember going into it, my my whole thing going into it was that I was going to go into this conversation knowing where we agreed. And I was like, so I'm going to go in this conversation with these two people. I wanted to go in like full of fury and fire, but I knew mm-hmm. I wouldn't get far. And I went in just thinking they are both loving the same God that I claim to be loving. They mm-hmm. both love their children the way that I love my daughter. And they both want to do good in this world. And mm. so I'm going to go in with those at the forefront rather than all the things that divide us. I'm going to go in with all the things that I know are true for all of us so that I can hear and listen. And, wow. and so I was really blown away. I wasn't, I think I was just so shocked, like, oh my goodness, of course there are people walking around who've had this as a legacy in their, in their family who've had racism as a legacy. And it just started me on this journey. I think a week later, I met with Tasha Morrison. I, I just happened to be lucky enough to wow. have enough friends in my circle. Yeah. 
Tasha and she was still living here in Austin because she was one of the first people I emailed. I was like, uh-huh. we've only met really quickly. Um, we've never really had a conversation, but here's what I'm facing and what do you think? And she emailed me right away. Like, this is a problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I said, great. That's all I need to know. I need to know that I'm not the only person seeing this as a problem. Uh-huh. Um, the slave debate thing. So she and I met and I just never looked back. It's just something because I I was so shocked. I grew up with all that kind of backwards education uh-huh. my whole life, my whole childhood. And I just thought we, I thought surely we come further along. And I assumed that my daughter was going to get a different, much more humane understanding of our history. It uh-huh. never occurred to me that we had not moved the needle not even an inch in the right direction. And so to sit and talk to Tasha, to, to go online and to research how teachers are teaching and to see countless videos of children doing slave debates, children in blackface, children. I mean, I was like teachers doing the strangest of projects to teach our history. Um, uh-huh. I, you know, made cowboy and Indian day. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was just, it was like, I was like Sleeping Beauty. Like I'd been asleep and I woke up. Like I, I was dumbfounded that this was the state of education. And so in an education that we were paying a lot of money for. <laughs> so yeah, um, I started really trying to have conversations, more conversations with the school. I got other parents involved who wanted to have the conversation. Um, Tasha actually reached out to one of her Be the Bridge groups and said, who was meeting who were other moms at the school that I didn't even know. I knew them, oh, wow. I didn't know that they had this passion. I knew, I knew yeah. the mom. And so the one mom just came up to me and she's like, hey, you have to be in our group. And it just so turned out that her group was, it was a couple moms from school. It was a, a Christian author. It was two young women, um, one a young Hispanic girl, one a young African-American girl, like millennials. And uh-huh. it, it, it just was exactly what I needed. Because I was so grieved, kind of like what you were saying, I was so grieved mm-hmm. by the news. I could see myself falling into like a depression over it. I just, I felt mm-hmm. so hopeless. And my fear was that my grandchildren were going to face the same thing. Right. And so we left that school eventually and not easily. We left after trying and trying. And I felt like as much as they wanted to change, I think I felt like it was just too hard for them. <laughs> so um, yeah. too hard to give up the privilege of not having to, because that's really mm-hmm. what it was. Like I came with a list of things that, that weren't demands, but just, if you are really wanting to change this, then you have to change your board. Your board is all white people mm-hmm. <laughs> and all very wealthy people. You've got to change mm-hmm. your board. And um, if you want to change, you're going to have to change your staffing and the way that you staff. And if you want to change, you're going to have to change the curriculum, like how you teach. You're going to add, it was a classical education school. And I was like, but there were no black books. Uh-huh. My daughter had not read a single book assigned in class that was written by a black person. So there were yeah. all these things, problems. It was overwhelming. <laughs> so as much as I, and I kept seeing them just continuing the same path. And uh-huh. I don't think that they didn't want to change. I just think they didn't. They didn't want to lose themselves because he, I, I was presented with things like, well, if you were doing our training or if you were helping us, that would be one thing because you know where we are coming from. 
but they didn't want to bring in a diversity coach. They didn't want to bring in someone who could teach them about inclusion. They didn't want to, they didn't want anyone from the outside coming in and telling them how to do things. And that's exactly what they needed. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was something. So we, more yeah. things happened and we left. Uh-huh. And my daughter, the interesting thing about it is that as I woke up, my daughter woke. And so mm. she started sharing more and more about what her school days were really like. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what have we done? What have we done? Mm-hmm. And we quickly undid it. <laughs> so, and well, we weren't the only ones. There were, there were several families, a handful of families, a handful of teachers who left. Mm. Yeah, you wrote, I was, you know, I've been studying and reading your website and you wrote in a piece titled Love Letter to My Daughter, Valentine's Day 2018. You were writing a little bit about this experience and waking up to this realization that your daughter, these burdens that she had been carrying were things that she hadn't talked to you about. And there was something that really stood out to me in that you said in here. It's also so easy to feel justified in our decisions about someone else's rights or our judgments about someone else's art when our own rights and passions are not being threatened. But you being black, female, the product of divorce, the member of a biracial blended family, know what it is to feel vulnerable. And vulnerability Mm -hmm. is the ultimate force behind all matters of love. And that really stood out to me. Talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, yeah, I, I think for me, part of the reason why it was easy for me to get, to get to where I'm at, um, Mm -hmm. with my thinking was that I've had a lot of vulnerability in my life. Um, and not chosen. Some of it's been chosen, but a lot of it's just the way that the chips fell, that I was, you know, the product of a, of a woman who was mentally disturbed, lots of dysfunction mm-hmm. in my family growing up, being a black woman. So it's so much easier to see others because you are, you are other. And so it's so mm-hmm. much easier to extend an olive branch, to extend kindness, hospitality, and love because you, you relate so well. And what I was finding at her school was that what she was being asked was that she be vulnerable, but no one else be vulnerable. Like she be right. vulnerable, but she changed herself in order to fit in, in order to have friends, in order to be invited, in order to just perform in a way that made sense to them so that they mm-hmm. didn't have to change. And the burden of that day in and day out as a kid who's searching for your identity. That's the time of life that you are really starting to question who you are in relation to the rest of the world. I can't believe that she was able to do so much of that work on her own because she did. Because I, I, and the only thing, I think the thing that helped was that we were so, she knew the stories of her family. So when she heard something that sounded crazy, she could just tuck that away as well. I know that's not true because I know my aunt Debbie or my aunt Mia or my uncle Dennis. I know these I know the stories of these people um, Mm -hmm. that proves that that's not true. And we have friends that we were loving and living in community with that had nothing to do with the church. I think that helped a lot. Um, We did a Mm -hmm. lot of fostering as well. A lot of the foster kids. So she was aware of the systems, even though we didn't even know that, that that's what they were called. And so mm-hmm. I think that's the vulnerability that I'm talking about is that if you've had it all handed to you 
it's a lot harder to be vulnerable because you don't have to be. You just don't have to be. If everyone looks right. like you in the class and if all the family's homes look like your home in the class and right. it's the same level of comfort, you just don't have to be very vulnerable. So we started doing things like, I started insisting that if I were going to have a conversation with any of the moms, because they were, it was a wealthy group of people. If they were going to have a conversation with me about race, then it was going to be in my home. And mm. the reason for that was because they need to be vulnerable. They need to come into a place that, that isn't like their home because my husband and I are by no means wealthy. Um, we mm-hmm. were, we were, we were sacrificing to get this education for her. And mm-hmm. so I would invite them to our very small apartment and you would have to like deal with that. And so, and learn mm-hmm. how to have someone who had less be your host. Right. But yeah. a lot of these people, the only time that they ever experienced that was on a mission trip was when mm-hmm. they had the power to do something about it. So it's very hard for them to just come and be in my home without me needing them for anything else except for them to be a guest. So there were, there were just lots of things like that that I started doing to kind of play mm-hmm. into that vulnerability and to kind of extend it. And it sounds awkward that that's a place for a wealthy person to be vulnerable, but trust me, it was, it, it, it is. It's just, oh yeah. They're used to certain communities, certain grocery stores, certain um, restaurants, cer- certain things. And so to take them out of that and say, okay, if we're going to have this conversation, I cannot come to your level of privilege and have this conversation. You're going to have to come the opposite way to have mm-hmm. it. And so, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, we'll go, we'll go back here just a little bit. One of the things that I wanted to learn about is what is behind your work in Black Coffee with White Friends? So when did it begin and what was the inspiration behind this? Um, I was always writing. I went to school for English Lit and writing. Mm-hmm. But I was told that I would never have a living at it. So I kind of just abandoned the idea. I, I for a while, was um, worked at Borders Books and Music and kind of got mm-hmm. to see how how books were selected and how books were sold. And I was gutted. I was really brokenhearted because the books that I loved were never on the bestsellers list. Right. And in fact, one of my favorite poets, his memoir, which was so gorgeous, I found it like on our remainder table for like a buck. And I remember for like uh. weeks, I was so depressed over this. And, I, and so I kind of thought, I don't want to, I don't want to enter into that arena. And I honestly mm-hmm. probably didn't believe I could compete in that arena, being that I'm not a competitive person. That's part of it. But um, mm-hmm. I always wrote and I knew that I wanted to write down my da- my stories for my daughter. Like I wanted her to have a sense of my family. We don't spend much time with my family. They're in Ohio and we've always been in Chicago and now we're in Texas. And so she, she really hadn't grown up in this African-American family. She had grown up very much in white culture, more so than I did. Cause even though I had mm-hmm. school, 
with all white classmates, I had like a billion cousins on the weekend. And I had, you know, like an all black church that I went to every weekend. So I still had my culture very much intact. She's not had that. It's, it's been white evangelical churches and it's, and it's a weird thing because I never chose it. It's just the way, it's just the way it happened. Um, yeah. We, we were able to live in certain neighborhoods, so we wouldn't live in those neighborhoods. We were able to go to certain schools, so we went to those schools. But I never considered what she might be losing in that. And so there's loss with that. So I started writing the stories because I knew that someday, having lost my own mom, who didn't tell us all her stories, and she had a lot of them, I wish I had those stories my grandparents. I wish I knew their migration story. I wish I knew my mom's story. I only knew a couple of things about my mom as far as how she handled the being a child of Jim Crow. I didn't want to leave my daughter thinking that I had no opinion of our current administration, no opinion of Black Lives Matter. Like I didn't want her to think that I was not very much deeply um, feeling things and, and working towards things during that time. I think I started the blog when she was 14 or 15, 14 or 15. She's not going to want to sit and have that conversation with me, you know, every night at dinner. <laughs> they just, right. You, you want them to be that kid, but they don't. They're just, they're just not. So, <laughs> so I thought, I'll write it down. And while I was at it, I was like, and, I am going to write letters to white friends, white friends that I never get to have these conversations with, either because we never took the time to intentionally have it or um, they have not wanted to have it. I've invited them to the conversation and they just kind of not want to hear it. So that was really it. The name of it was a fluke. I didn't know what else to name it. And I, as a joke, said that my life was basically me, um, the black coffee with my white friends. That, that's I love what it. I said to my husband because I was often yeah. going and meeting friends for coffee and all my friends were these white, <laughs> wealthy women. And so, and my husband was like, that's it. <laughs> I was like, that can't be it. He's like, I think that's it. And so I just went with it because I felt like I had nothing to lose at this point. I got into that point where I just felt like I don't, I don't have anything to lose. I have mm. no influence that I'm afraid is going to disappear. So I might as well just say what I mean to say. And so that's how it started. I just wanted to lay down a trail of the truth that I was finding for my daughter in particular, and also to speak out to also have something to point to when people wanted to have a conversation, I couldn't have a conversation for whatever reason, timing or whatever, that I had this blog. And if you really want to know, please visit it, read. I've said and will continue to say all that I need to say right there. Wow. It's like your memoir. It reminds me of, and I don't want to be like the cliche white girl here who only quotes Ta-Nehisi Coates, but it does remind me, right, of like his letter to his son, right, in this sense. And and here you're writing your story to your daughter and that that is the power that propels and motivates you in that. So was there a time period just historically, because you've been doing this how many years now? I've been writing forever. 
And I think mm-hmm. I started publishing because a lot of those letters, especially to my daughter, are really old letters. Like I wrote them ages ago, like when she was really little. So, so cool. But the blog, I think I went live in January of last year. Okay. And and I remember reading where you had said, not in your wildest dreams, would you have imagined that it would take off the way that it has? Tell me about that. What has the reception been like? I kind of made a deal with myself and with God because I, I didn't want to people please. And mm-hmm. I I can be that kind of a person where, where I'm searching for the approval of others or waiting for someone to give me permission. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I would not promote this blog. I'm, I'm not going to promote it. If it's meant to be found, it'll be found. And um, when I launched it, my husband posted, my husband's a graphic designer mm-hmm. and he post he did all the design work on the blog. And so he posted the logo on his blog, on his Instagram feed. And those were my first followers that <laughs> were designers who were who were intrigued who loved his design and then were intrigued by the name of and he just Mm -hmm. did this little thing this is something my wife's up to right now you should check it out it's great like you know as a good husband should and um, (laughs) and then before I knew it I think that day we were like watching the numbers go up and I stopped watching the numbers because I was like that's freaking me out and I don't think I can work like knowing that there are people who are expecting me something (laughs) of me so I just kind of like walked away a little surprised and just kind of dumbfounded by it. And it still is that way to me today. It's funny. I recently decided, I, I recently finished my first book proposal and Yay. I was like, okay, with encouragement from people who have gone before me and, and worked on books, but I was in turmoil the whole entire time working on this book proposal, like just in turmoil. It was just the worst experience that a writer could have. Like there was just, you know, I'm up all night and I'm, I'm driving my husband and my daughter crazy with, you know, the what, the ifs, the shoulds, the coulds. Like I, I just was just really kind of manic about it. And uh-huh. I finally made this decision. It kind of just came over me that. I've done this so grassroots. What if I did this book grassroots? What if I, you know, did my book proposal, finished it and figured out how to do it myself and just mm-hmm. put it out there in the world and just see what, what happens. And so I just, it's been so much easier for me not to really think about the numbers and to think about the community, which has been beautiful. I've just met the most beautiful people <laughs> um, online. Um, of all backgrounds. I, and mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for that because I worried that I didn't want the, the blog to only speak to certain people. I wanted, I, I certainly didn't want it to only speak to Christians. I didn't want mm-hmm. it to only speak to black people. I didn't want it to only speak to white people. And it's interesting because I've had, I've had indigenous people follow. I've had, you know, just Asian people follow. I've, I've had, I've had just things that I never imagined mm-hmm. and connections I never imagined. Um, just because I, I, I wasn't able to conceive it because I, I just didn't know it existed. And it's just been really beautiful. And I would love to continue that way. My great fun thing that I love doing, I love commenting and responding to every comment if I can. Yes. I hope that never changes because it's, I just think, oh my gosh, I know how busy I am in my world. 
And right. I know these women and men are equally busy in their world and that anyone would take the time to comment blows my mind. <laughs> it, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I because, love this. Yeah. 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 Because you can have the best. I mean, I support a lot of things because there's mm-hmm. so much good work being done out there to support your, your, your podcast for one. But the fact that I get that someone chooses to support me blows my mind. I don't take it lightly at all mm-hmm. because I think, man, we could all be doing other stuff. And I also, right. especially when it's someone who doesn't have to think about this stuff, it's one thing for someone who's indigenous or, or Hispanic or a person of color, um, or, um, any sort of oppression to think about it and to engage in it. But when white women and white men take time to be present in it, I'm grateful for that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm super grateful for it. I'm not. I certainly, because they don't have to. And I know so many who sure. don't. I have very close friends of mine who've never read my blog and they, they were the first people that I invited. Um, I have family yeah. members who have never read it. And that's oh, been yeah. really hard because yeah. I'm just like, wow, but you won't read it. And so there's been some real difficult conversations that my husband and I have had when we realized that there are people who were close to us who have not been supportive or are just so confused or so afraid of what I might be saying. And it, 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 it's hard. It's a heartbreak because I'm like, well, don't you know me? Like, you know, we've had dinner, we've, we've shared our stories Our you know, like, I I can't believe that you wouldn't think um, that it would be anything but, grace because I hope that's what I portray in our friendship or in our relationship so that's been that's been surprising too a very surprising thing because I was afraid of trolls and um Mm -hmm. they're out there believe me oh (laughs) I just I just encountered one (laughs) yeah they're out there but I just try to focus on the fact that there's more people who really do want to know who really do want to be engaged in a community of doing better, of all of us doing better, um, more so than the people who are like, I'm going to shut this down. Right. And I, really. And Austin Channing Brown says something really interesting in her book, I'm Still Here. Uh-huh. Towards the end of it, she talks a little bit about hope. And she was saying how she's learned to live with times of not being all that hopeful. But she Uh said something where she said, you know what, not everyone during the 60s civil rights movement was on board. And yet things still got done. It was just so profound because I hadn't thought about that. Not everyone needs to be part of this journey that a lot of us are on to do better Uh in order for us to all do and make this world better. There are plenty of people who can be on the sidelines jeering and trying to rip us down. But I think in the end, goodness prevails. So amen. I, I don't worry about it so much as I did when I first started out. And I realized like I had a friend who sent me like an email saying, hey, I, I saw your post about your new blog. <laughs> and um, she said, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to sit with that name for a little while. And, you know. And then later, like, commented on my feed, like, yeah, I, so, so I've thought about the name, and I think I'm okay with it. And I just was uh. so, and I, I was like, did you not know I was black? 
Did you miss right. the point? Did you not? I mean, you, I've been at all these meetings and coffees and teas and lunches. And did you not notice that I was the only mom who was black who was there? I mean, right. I was so dumbfounded that she had to really stretch and maybe even go into a prayer closet to even, like, <laughs> to even be okay with it. I just, I was so surprised. Well, um, and it's, it's that <laughs> whole colorblind ethic, oh, yeah. right? She knew you were black, yeah. but she didn't know if it was okay to know you were black, oh, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. what does it mean if I really acknowledge that you're black right. and I'm white? Right. And there's that fear of the, like, uh, is that going to cause greater division? Does that yeah. make me racist? You know, and, yeah. and, and it just sends people into a tailspin. Right. So much of what you've said about just your process and your experience putting yourself out there, it resonates so much. And I see that with you. I remember when I just put my little thing up on Instagram yeah. and I found you and I followed you. And when you followed me back, I was like, Phil, to my husband, I'm like, I am fangirling over here. Black <laughs> coffee with white friends followed me like little old me. And I really felt and I could see that in you that you are so intentional about, you know, just seeing people, listening to people, being present there, cheering people on, you know, and there's just this mutual respect and humility. And I love that. And that's something that, uh, you know, just like you said, you don't take for granted that these people could be doing something else, following somebody else, you know, and, and just, it's not lost on you that that is an honor to share space with people in that way. And I think that is so humanizing and so profound and so important to experience in these hard spaces, right? Yes. So important to experience because, um, and a lot of that is also being married to a white guy. Um, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, there've been lots of times we've gone and we've, gone to hear someone speak about their book or about the work that they're doing and he has felt completely unseen and I I get why that's necessary in certain spaces it's absolutely necessary in certain spaces and that's a whole podcast in and of itself right? that yeah. my white husband sometimes needs to be unseen right um, exactly however I always felt that if you're writing um as a person of color and people show up I just feel like every person who shows up deserves to be seen and I'm mm -hmm. not saying everyone who gets a cookie <laughs> gets a right exactly that, but right. I just think they just need to at least feel that they were seen and that them being there was of value to you mm -hmm. as the person who is wanting to lead and we haven't always experienced that. There have been times that I've walked out and I, I even felt like, I don't even know if, if it mattered if I, if I right. was there, you know, mm -hmm. it's not been often. It's, it's fewer times than most, but it's something when you go into a space and you have someone speak a truth and they're speaking it to you in hopes that you are going to take the journey with them, then that's a hard thing to do. So I think that a lot of times what I feel a lot of my followers have shared with me in emails is that they show up and they feel 
deflated because they arrive and the person is just like doesn't have hope that they're gonna they're gonna stand up and follow up and and do the work and Mm -hmm. I've just not had that experience across the board I've had it I've had it so I know what it is that they're feeling and why that's there and I share that I'm like it's exhausting (laughs) it's um it's mm-hmm. most people aren't you. Most people aren't you. They're not going to, they're not going to do the work. That's just the truth mm-hmm. of it. And we see it time and time right. again, terribly disappointed, but mm-hmm. um, that is not to discredit you or doesn't mean that the person doesn't value you. It's just that you felt that way. So I really think my place in all of this work Mm-hmm. I'm not a scholar. There's so many people who they study this, they've degreed in it, they've done all this mm-hmm. work in it. Mine is experiential. This is my experience. And right. I would like to share my experience with you. And in order for me to share my experience to, with you and for it to be received, I think I need to also share in your experience if you're willing to invite me into it. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. And I, I actually love following I just love following. I can't follow everyone, but right. <laughs> certain people and I, certain people say things or they just strike me or there's just something and I go to their feed and I see them just doing this life and I see them like posting the books that they're reading. Um, I, I automatically pretty much follow anyone who's raising a child of color, especially if it's a white family raising a child of color. Because I mm-hmm. just think that must be a lonely place sometimes if you're in certain yeah. communities. And I want to follow and I want to read and I want to, if your kid's doing these amazing things, and usually it's silly things because they're little, but I want to I wanna mm-hmm. be part of that for sure. And I definitely want to follow any person of color or any person who is white who's doing this work, who's committed to it. And it's just mm-hmm. an automatic. And I love it when it's women. So I was super excited. Yes. I was like, oh my gosh, what a cool name. And I, was, I think the next day we were listening to podcasts of yours. So it's, it was, Aww. it was very mutual. So I fangirl a lot over, over people who are following me and doing just beautiful work. And some of the work has, it's not so much about um, head on justice. It's just goodness. They're just doing Uh beautiful things. And I think it's so needed in this time when, you know, you open your newsfeed and so much of it just is so upsetting and so ugly and so, you know, hopeless. It it makes you feel hopeless. And so Uh I to see pictures of people's children being ridiculous. I really do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or your dog or your cat just being outrageous. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're when you're researching too, there there are times and maybe you've felt this where you're researching a certain thing and you find pictures and you're seeing picture after picture of just the most disturbing mm. things or you're hearing yes. video after video. And the last thing that you need at the end of the day is more of the news you just need to see have in your feed um yeah just people knowing that people there are good people who are still out there trying to live good whole lives wanting to fill their whole life with whole truths 
wanting to hear mm. my story and your story and all the stories and want to be accountable for how we handle those stories. I need that reminder often, um, most days. And it's especially important for me be, because I still do live in a very white-centered world. My community is more diverse than it's, than it's been in the last few years, but it's still, uh-huh. you know, it's still very much white. <laughs> so it's very encouraging for me just to be able to relate to everyone's pictures because we all love our kids and we we all love our coffee and we we all are just kind of sharing in the same life experience and it's beautiful for me to be able to do that all right well that concludes part one of our two-part discussion with marcy walker from black coffee with white friends if you're not following her on instagram i recommend that you head over and do that her space is full of encouragement and beauty and challenge and truth and you know i am a huge fan Also, you can check out her website at blackcoffeewithwhitefriends.com. If you are enjoying what we're doing here at Speaking of Racism, subscribe, share, give us feedback. Let us know what you want to hear more of, less of. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us. We're just grateful that you're here and that you've taken time out of your day to enter this space and enter this conversation. So thank you. 